Our text for this Lord's Day is uh, Matthew chapter 17, verses uh, 22 to the end of the chapter. This passage ends the narrative section that began back in verse 53 of chapter 13. We've had been in a narrative section since then. And we'll see that Jesus' description of believers here in this passage as sons of the king anticipates the focus of the teaching section that will begin uh, with chapter 18. That teaching section will focus primarily on, on what we might call kingdom themes. Of course, that theme of kingdom runs all the way through the Gospel of Matthew, but it especially uh, comes into focus in Jesus' uh, teaching in chapters 18 through 20. And uh, there's much there that we'll be able to uh, benefit from regarding uh, relationships within the kingdom as well as uh, the relationship of the kingdom to this world. It's uh, not unusual that the Holy Spirit would inspire Matthew, a former tax collector, uh, to include this particular uh, passage in our, in our reading. Uh, it's not found in any of the other Gospels, the incident at the end of this chapter. Uh, and it's, uh, it's noteworthy as, as well to notice that this little episode that we'll read, read through in a few minutes uh, also focuses on that theme of kingdom, the kingdom of God. Uh, we'll see a movement in these uh, verses. Even though it's a brief passage, we're going to see a movement uh, here from suffering to sorrow, but then, then from obligation uh, to freedom and love. So let's allow God's word to speak to us this day. Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 through 27. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the half-shekel tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others... Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Well, we, we notice as we begin this text, this is the third time within a relatively short span of reading that we've read Jesus' reference to the ordeal uh, to which he is heading. Uh, during the time when uh, Jesus and his disciples were to the north of Galilee, or remember in Caesarea Philippi, uh, after Peter had identified him as the anointed one, the son of God, the living one, uh, Jesus had brought up the subject of his suffering. Uh, he had commanded his disciples not to speak of him as the anointed one or Messiah to other people, and at that point explicitly spoke then of the ordeal he was going to undergo. 
Matthew 16, 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. You'll probably also remember that Simon Peter uh, tries to rebuke Jesus at that point and tell him, no, he's not going to suffer. That's not the plan. And uh, Jesus had very clearly, we very forcefully labeled Simon's words as the words of Satan and saying that uh, Simon was focusing his thoughts on, on human, a human perspective rather than God's, God's will. Now probably on the way back then south to Galilee, we, we had that incident that we looked at uh, recently of the transfiguration. So somewhere between Caesarea and Philippi and, and Galilee and and Capernaum probably is when the place where they had uh, that experience, Simon, Peter, James, and John. And you'll remember coming down from that glorious experience of seeing, seeing the veil parted just a little bit so that they, they could behold Jesus' glory, his divine glory. Uh, Jesus again brought up the subject of his suffering. And in mentioning John the baptizer, uh, Jesus drew a parallel between what happened to John with his unjust arrest and his, his execution uh, to what he was going to be facing. He said, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at the, their hands, that is, the hands of men. And so now as, as Jesus is preparing his disciples to head southward now uh, toward Jerusalem, uh, he brings up yet again the ordeal that will lead to his death that we see in our text. And notice the image or word picture that, that he uses here because it adds another component to the prophecy of the path that he is, is going to take. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Now, sometimes the verb here is rendered... Uh, shall be delivered, going to be delivered. Sometimes it's rendered betrayed. Okay, it depends on the translation that you're reading. But before that, I want you to notice that little word, about to be, uh, because I think it'd be best to translate that certainly. Certainly. It, it's the same word that, that we read back when he was saying in verse 12, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Notice this recurring emphasis on, on the inevitability of what he is undertaking. As you, as you go through the, the rest of this gospel, or you read in other gospels, Jesus going to Jerusalem, you should notice the steely determination that he exhibits. Going, he knows, to certain suffering and death, yet there is a resoluteness about him. There is an incredible courage and, and, and dedication reflected in that. So, so I'd like to read this. He certainly, the Son of Man, will be delivered into the hands of men. And, and notice that phrasing as well. You see the, the play on the word man there? The son of man, remember that's his favorite title for himself, 
the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men. Now, we've seen in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus, Jesus fill out, flesh out, that image of the Son of Man, okay, that name that he uses for himself. We have seen that he claimed that the Son of Man has authority of God on earth to forgive sins. Remember that episode with the paralyzed man. He has declared that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And that's really tantamount to identifying himself with the creator who established the Sabbath at creation. He told his disciples that he as the Son of Man is the king of the kingdom of God and the one who raises up children or citizens of that kingdom. As the Son of Man, Jesus has just recently accepted from his disciples the acknowledgement that he is the anointed one, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, now Jesus says the Son of Man, who is all these things, certainly will be delivered into the hands of men. What's going to be the response of human beings to that? Are they going to bow the knee before him as king? Will they plead for his forgiveness? Will human beings acknowledge him as the disciples did, or have begun to understand him as the anointed one, the Messiah, the king of Israel? Well, you know, they're not going to do any of these things, are they? Instead, they're they will falsely accuse him of breaking laws that he didn't break, unjustly condemn him for sins he did not commit. They would take pleasure in beating him, mocking him with a crown of thorns. They would delight in publicly subjecting him to a shameful and agonizing death. When God, in human form, puts himself in the hands of men, they will, in the words of the insane philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, kill God. So much for the tender mercies of the human race. Well, it's also worth noting that word that we mentioned before, betrayed or delivered over. Because that's going to that's gonna give us a fuller picture of what's happening here. Some translations do use the word betrayed here. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and it can be used that way. It can be translated that way. Jesus uses it that way himself back in Matthew chapter 10. He says, in describing what's going to happen to his followers in terms of persecution, he says, brother will deliver brother over to death. Father is child. Children arise up against parents and have them put to death. Clearly, there's an image of betrayal there, so it would be right to translate that betray. But I think probably it's best to read this text as delivered over because that has a broader range of meaning. And especially because it's used in this sense in other passages that speak of Jesus' suffering and death. Uh, it occurs many places, but let me just mention a few. Uh, think of Romans chapter 4, verse 25, where the Apostle Paul writes that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's exactly the same word here, delivered up, as in our text. Now, now what's the point there? 
That's not talking about Judas, right? I mean, we could read our text and think, well, this is foreshadowing the betrayal of Judas. But that's not what Paul has in mind in using this term in in Romans chapter 4, is it? No, it's the will and act of God that he's talking about there. Paul's saying that God purposed that the sins of believers be forgiven on the basis of his delivering up Jesus. He's the agent here in Romans chapter 4, isn't it? And clearly that's a reference to his suffering the justice that those sins deserve. So so are, are you beginning to get this awe-inspiring picture of God himself in the person of the Father delivering up God the Son as a sacrifice. This is beautifully stated again later in the Epistle to the Romans in chapter 8, Romans 8.32. He that is God who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The Father delivered up the Son to atone for your sins. Now, of course, we'd want to add that that delivering up is not contrary to the will of the Son. He doesn't go protesting to the cross. Rather, it it can truthfully be said that the Son delivers himself up as a sacrifice. Think of Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul talks about what it means for him to be a Christian and reflects on the means whereby he experiences that. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, here it is, who loved me and gave himself for me. Literally, he says, he loved me and delivered himself up for me. In fact, Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 says that, that, that not only is Christ accomplishing our salvation in that act, he's also showing us the way that we are to live, following him. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning of verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He repeats this truth to great effect in his command to believing husbands later on in that chapter. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now notice here in this passage that the purpose that Jesus had in giving himself up for you, if you're a member of the church, It is not merely to save you from the hell that you deserve, but that you will be made holy, complete, perfect before him. You see that imagery in in the verse, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, in splendor, holy, and without blemish? 
Now, now notice that means that in, in Jesus' act of delivering himself up for you, he has accomplished everything that is necessary for your ultimate glorification. You don't add anything to that. Human effort adds nothing to the work of Christ. Don't don't buy that lie because it's out there. That, That idea that, well, Christ saves you from hell, but then you've got to reform yourself. That's not in Scripture. Jesus has accomplished everything for you. And he has given you his Holy Spirit. And, and, and as Paul says in, later on in Romans chapter 8, you know, he, he's going to take you all the way from, from predestining your salvation all the way to glory. He's going to take you all the way on the basis of what Jesus has done in delivering himself up and the Father has done in delivering the Son. I, I think we see that intimated uh, in, in Jesus' dying words. His, his dying words are, it is finished. And then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And there's our verb again. He delivered up his spirit. He had done everything. So you could say it's completed. It's all done. And deliver over his spirit to the Father. That, that's what's in mind here in our text. When you read that the Son of Man certainly to be delivered up. Don't forget that wonderful truth. I should add the warning that if you refuse the grace of God in Christ, if you refuse the grace that he extends as he gives the Son, as the Son gives himself up, then God will give you up. That language is used three times in the beginning of the book of Romans to describe the action of God in allowing sinners to continue in the way that they choose. Okay, after establishing that, that human beings are without excuse before God, he goes on to say, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up. He delivered them up. What did he deliver them up to? He gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And so Paul goes on, second time, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, third time, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, 
haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they, do, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. God gave them up. And notice the, notice the teaching here that the, the judicial consequences of human sin in mind and heart is not just in, eternal, in an eternal hell. Those consequences begin to be, be acted out in history. Did you catch that? God's judgment of the rejecting of his glory as the only worthy of object, object of worship is idolatry. You see what's happening? That the punishment for sin in your heart is the sins you commit. Sometimes people have the idea, well, I'm getting away with this when they sin. They don't realize they're actually suffering the consequences already for their sin in those shameful acts that they're doing. Perhaps the most dreadful word given to a prophet is that which God gives for the people of Ephraim, which is another name for Israel. Hosea 4.17, Ephraim is joined to his idols, leave him alone. Give him up. That's what God is saying to the, the prophet there. God is giving them up. And isn't that what we see in our own culture? And the multiplying of sinful behaviors in our culture is not a sign that God is not paying attention. It is rather a sign that judgment is already happening in people's lives as they destroy them with sin. Now, the disciples don't understand all this yet. Okay? They, they, they don't really understand the significance of God's delivering up the Son and the Son delivering himself up. They, they have learned not to object. Okay? They don't follow Simon Peter's example and, and interrupt him at this point and start trying to talk him out of it. But notice what their response is. They were greatly distressed, greatly distressed. Now, it might be our, our tendency to think, well, I mean, he, he says he's going to be raised on the third day. Why, why don't they hear that? Why, don't, why are they distressed? But, you know, we're, we're looking from this side of the cross in the resurrection. You need to try to think of it from their viewpoint. Uh, I mean, when he speaks of the resurrection, they don't understand a resurrection like he's going to experience into a glorified body. Uh, it, it may be that they're, they're thinking of the resurrection of the just at the end of the age. Okay, so maybe they're thinking, well, he's going to die, and then we'll see him again. Well, we won't see him again in this lifetime, will we? We won't see him till the resurrection. So it may be that they're thinking that. Uh, you know, they, they've left everything for this man, and they can't imagine, imagine his not being there with them. Maybe they think, well, he, he does mean a, a little resurrection in three days, but it's, it's going to be like the resurrections we've seen him perform. You know, we, we've seen him raise a, a little girl from the dead, and, and she resumed her life. Well, you know, maybe that's what he's talking about, but 
but that's confusing to them too, isn't it? Because what, what would be the point of that? You know, of, of his suffering and then rising again and then instituting his kingdom? They, they, just, they, don't, have, they don't have all the pieces together here. So it's not unusual that they're misunderstanding here. All they're, all they're hearing is the suffering and death that seems to overshadow in their minds the resurrection. Uh, but, you know, even, even though we, we live on this side of Jesus' resurrection, uh, that doesn't mean that suffering and death is to be easy. That doesn't mean that, that, doesn't mean that it is not grievous to you when suffering and death enters your life. Don't, don't follow the way of the world that tries to minimize that. Okay, the false religions that teach, well, you know, after you die, there's nothing, so why worry? Or, well, after you die, your, your life force just sort of gets recirculated into the uh, circle of life. You know, they're, they're trying to avoid the pain of death, but in the process, they're basically saying, so your human life here now is worthless. Okay? It's meaningless. It's, you're just going to be gone, and that's it. Uh, a, a biblical understanding of, of suffering and death says that real people experience this. The loss is genuine. It's real. It, it's, not, it's not just a going into oblivion. And, and so... And so Christians do grieve at suffering and death. But, but just as we grieve because we know it is a reality, we also have a living hope because of Jesus' resurrection that transcends that suffering and death. That, that, that biblical view lends lends much more hope in the long run, doesn't it? Uh, because it says that human life is not meaningless. A and that for the believer, death then becomes the entrance into eternal life. All that they haven't learned quite yet. Okay. They will. They will. They will face suffering and death themselves faithfully, and know God's presence with it. But they're not quite there yet. Well, in the second part of our text, we, we leave behind that discussion of Jesus' suffering and, and come to this uh, rather unusual discussion uh, about paying a tax. And let's just briefly take a look at this because there are some important principles that can help us here. Uh, this tax is a tax to support the temple. This is not a Roman tax. So this passage does not really address Christians' relationship with secular government. We see that addressed in passages like Romans 13, but this is not one. Okay, this was, well, it wasn't exactly a tax, really, because nowhere in Scripture was this mandated. Now, the, the biblical basis for it in the minds of some was the uh, census tax that had been taken back in the Exodus, in Exodus chapter 30, 
Moses was to take a census of the nation, and every man was to pay a half a shekel. And that went to the uh, upkeep of the tabernacle and the performance of the worship services there. Uh, in Nehemiah, we see a group of returning exiles who voluntarily uh, make a pledge, as it were, to give a third of a shekel each year to the uh, rebuilding and the maintenance of temple worship. But again, neither of those are presented as law. Neither of those are presented as God's command for his people. But by this time in, in uh, Israel's history, they had become accustomed. Okay, the temple was a big enterprise, and so you're expected, if you're a patriotic Jew, if you're a loyal follower of, of Israel, you're expected to pay this uh, sort of dues to the temple every year. That's what's in view here. And so perhaps knowing that uh, Jesus is teaching some things that are contrary to the traditions of the elders, uh, these tax collectors or these uh, donation acceptors approach Peter, maybe because he lives there in, in Capernaum and he would be known to them, and maybe they were a little bit intimidated to come up to Jesus and ask this, but they asked, does he pay the tax? In fact, the wording in, in the Greek actually presumes a, a positive answer, so we might better read this. Uh, your teacher does pay the tax, doesn't he? And Peter immediately, of course, uh, has an answer. He doesn't ever think too much before he says anything, and so he says yes. And Jesus uses this then as a teaching opportunity for Peter and for us. He he preempts Peter before Simon can say anything. He addresses him there in, in verse 25. What do you think, Simon? He's using a question, which Jesus often does with his teaching, doesn't he? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax, from their sons or for, from others? And, of course, the question is obvious. Now, in a democracy like ours, the president and his family is not supposed to get away with not paying taxes, but in a kingdom mentality in which, uh, which uh, the ancient world existed, uh, the king's family didn't have to pay any taxes. Uh, so Simon's answer is, well, he gets taxes and tolls from others. And here's the principle that Jesus gives to us then. Then the sons are free. And you see the analogy he's making there. Who are the sons? Who, who are the family of the king? Well, that's you, if you belong to Jesus Christ. You're a citizen of the kingdom. That's you. You are free. You're free, not compelled to follow the religious customs that people add to God's law. I think that's perhaps the import of this, of this teaching. Believers are, by the declaration of God, his children. By faith, you've been adopted by God, so you are children of the King. Jesus uh, emphasizes this, of course, with his frequent references in, that we've already seen in Matthew of, as he's speaking to believers, your Father in heaven. He's saying you're children of the King by that. He says, then the righteous will shine like sun in the kingdom of their Father. How is it that you are made children? Well, Paul outlines that in, in Romans 8. We won't go through 
all of that passage, but it's through the work of the Holy Spirit bringing you to faith, causing you to be born again, causing you to be adopted into the kingdom of God. So you have status then as the children of God. You are not bound by merely human traditions and rules. We need to keep that in mind as a church. It's easy to start putting stuff on one another. Okay. We have a good idea about the way the church ought to be, and so we sort of import that idea, and it becomes an expectation. Jesus is saying, don't let that happen. You are free. You are free. As I said before, he's accomplished everything for your salvation. There's nothing you do to add to that. You don't have to pay a certain tax. You don't have to act a certain way in order to earn God's favor. All that he has done for you has accomplished your salvation. You are free in him. Now we might expect then, well, if Jesus says they're free, he's going to say, well, forget the tax. <laughs> We're not obligated to that. It's not in God's word. I'm going to obey God's word in every respect, but uh, we don't need to do this. And, and Jesus didn't hesitate to to confront people. He didn't hesitate to risk offending people. We've seen him do that with the, with the uh, religious elite, right? You remember they were criticizing the disciples because they didn't follow the ritual of hand washing that they'd invented. And Jesus is very forthright in, in rejecting that. And they were offended by it. Uh, but Jesus doesn't offend for the sake of offending. And he doesn't want you to be doing that either. Yes, you are free in him. He has done everything for your salvation. But he wants you to be careful not to offend one another or other people needlessly, doesn't he? We're going to see him say in Matthew chapter 18, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, and there the word is to be offended, if you offend one of these little ones, he says, you know, it would have been better if somebody had thrown you into the sea and you drowned. So, so Jesus is, is calling us, well, as he says in his Sermon on the Mount, to be peacemakers, to be those who seek not to offend, but, but to build one another up. The principle is outlined in Romans 14. And again, we won't go all the way through that, but just pick up on a couple of things. Paul says, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Now, now Jesus could say, you know, you have no right to expect this gift from me. But he is concerned that, that these collectors might be offended by that. They might misunderstand his intent. And it's not worth a half a shekel to him uh, to stand on his rights, to assert his privilege over them. He does not want to put a stumbling block to, to offend. And Paul applies this by saying, everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. There are people in the church here in Rome that he's, he's writing to, there are people that have certain dietary uh, rules, customs that they follow. 
And Paul says, you're not to offend them by trying to get them to break their rules. You're not to offend them by seeking to force your ideas on them. He says in 1 Corinthians, though I am free from all, okay, I have freedom in Christ, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God myself and under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And what's his motive? I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. I don't want my personal preferences to offend someone and cause them not to hear the gospel. He says in Galatians, you were called to freedom, brothers. So that's you. You were called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Where, where is all this leading us? Well, as your Lord denied himself, even to the point of suffering and death, for your sake as believers, then you're called to deny yourselves for the sake of others to seek not to offend one another, but rather to build one another up in the body of Christ. You're not compelled, like the people of the world, to defend your rights, assert your preferences over others, because your confidence is in God who will exalt you in his time and glorify you with himself for eternity. In brief, you are freed to love others because Christ has loved you and poured his love into your hearts. What higher calling could you have? Isn't that so much better than just trying to gain status by pushing your own rights? Let's close with this passage from 1 John chapter 3. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And then skipping down a few verses, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Let's pray together. Only Father, we are, we are grateful for the love that you have shown to us in Jesus Christ. You have done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Uh, you, you have delivered up yourself in the person of Jesus Christ for our salvation, uh, something we could never even ask for, 
uh, much less demand. And you have shown us such love. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, uh, help us to help us to be be imitators of you in that love. Uh, give us a desire not to offend, but to build one another up. And we know that uh, you will use that to good effect in our lives, and it will be a good witness to the world around us as well. Uh, we pray that you would do this by the spirit that you have given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.